0: Okay, Dr. Daniel Wendler, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. My bio says we have you as a two-time TEDx speaker, a psychologist, best-selling author. I know that you have a a diagnosis of autism, have been working on the challenges of that and really helping people through and through, not only in in the speeches that you've made, but on -on one-on-one therapy. You're doing a lot of amazing work and we're so excited to be able to speak with you. So thank you. Just tell us a little bit, just introduce yourself a little bit, however you you like to, besides the sort of bio part. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I think what I would maybe say uh, is that there's a couple of things about me that uh, are kind of notable. I I like to think of myself as uh, sort of bringing a quirky perspective to whatever situation that I'm in. Um, I think that when I was... Growing up, I I maybe kind of would try to hide that um, to tr- sort of mask it and appear a little bit more normal. I'm doing air quotes for the folks that are listening to the audio, but then I think as I as I've gotten older, I've sort of learned that uh, the people that really you know are right for me like want to know my whole self, and so they they like my quirky side, and I try to let that uh, you know fly and be expressed. Um, I think I think on the same side, I, I try to be um a friend that kind of looks past uh sort of initial appearances i think that a lot of times my my best friends have come from folks that uh weren't necessarily in the popular crowd or weren't necessarily from the folks that other people reached out to and so i i try to like you know look past that when and 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 look instead to like character or compassion things like that and i'm kind of a nerd like video games like dungeons and dragons so maybe we'll throw that in there too as a part of what i am outside of my professional bio
0: For sure. So just tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your excellent TED Talk in 2018, What Being Autistic Taught Me About Being Human. Just tell us, you know, in your own words, not uh, obviously a copy of that, your Mm -hmm. story about your experiences being on the spectrum and how you navigated it. You mentioned something about masking, which is trying to fit Mm -hmm. in. Tell us a little bit about your experience from an internal perspective, how you handled that.
1: Yeah, so I, I had... You know, I grew up in the nineties and that was sort of before autism was really widely understood. Um, And so I had a lot of struggles growing up socially that, that like my parents, that the, you know, the schools, whatever, they didn't really know what to do with it. Um, I would um, really have a lot of difficulties with bullying. I would have a lot of difficulties with uh, sort of fitting in and trying to make friends um, and a lot of times those things would would sort of overlap, like I wouldn't necessarily know the difference between a bully and a friend. And so sometimes I would try to connect with the kids who would just sort of want to abuse me, or sometimes maybe somebody would tease me in a good natured way, and I would think that they were being mean to me. And so I would, I would you know, have, you know, I would, I would cry or I would withdraw from them or something like that. And so I, I had a lot of struggles. And as I was growing up, uh, a lot of how I understood those struggles was to kind of blame myself for them. Because I looked around, I looked at the other kids, they all seemed like they knew what they were doing, they could fit in, and I was the one that was on the outside. And so I figured, well, there must be something wrong with me. But then when I um, when I went to uh, high school, or actually just before high school, my parents who had been you know this whole time trying to figure out what was going on and get me the right supports, uh, they got me in with a specialist psychologist who was able to diagnose me with what was uh, Asperger's at the time. Uh, that's no longer a diagnosis you can get, so I'm, I'm vintage. I like to say, but um, diagnosed me with Asperger's, and that was this huge eye-opening experience for me because I realized it's not that I'm bad. It's not that like just my soul is unlikable to other people. It, it's that I don't. I don't really know the rules of the game. I don't really know the social schools. I don't really know. You know like, like there's this universe of skills of conversation body language Etc that everybody else is following along and that's how they're able to be successful and I just don't have those skills so it's not like there's something wrong with me it's just it's just a thing that I don't know and like I always love learning and so then I started learning I started studying I started teaching myself um I, I started studying social skills at the same time that I started to study Spanish and I didn't keep up with my Spanish studies so don't don't try to you know, asked me to translate for you, but, uh, you know, I, I found a lot of similarities in that, you know, you could learn to communicate with other people. You just sort of had to learn the rules of the road. And as I started to do that, I started to really expand my ability to connect with other people um, and find just a lot of wonderful connection. But then as I went through that process and as I started to connect, what I discovered is that the challenges that I had of, of connection and relationships and loneliness... That, that I thought were sort of like just my own problem, uh, they were actually things that everybody struggles with. Um, I, I read an article the other day that said that we're in a loneliness recession um, and, you know, not a financial one, but a, but a loneliness one. And we've heard about like the loneliness epidemic. I think that a lot of people really struggle with friendship, with connection. And so I, I kind of, like my my TEDx talk was to kind of take sort of what I had learned from my own journey towards connection and relationships and be able to say, Hey, this is something that everybody can benefit from all of us, you know, need friends and deserve to reach out and find people who will accept us. And all of us can be a friend. Everybody has the power to reach out and be a friend to somebody else that might need it. And doesn't matter if you're autistic or not. And so that was the big message of the Ted talk.
0: Wow. I want to, I want to pause for a second and go back to the time before you really had those skills. Mm -hmm. What do you understand about the development of your brain and, and, and there was missing gaps? How did, how did, as far as you understand today, how does that happen? Is it totally a genetic, is it totally like, are there cues missed? Are there, um, primer, you're primed for certain skills at certain ages, like language acquisition, Mm -hmm. How does it work that you did, weren't able to, let's say, download automatically over practice over a period of time, like these, these intangible skills? What mm-hmm. do, you, do you understand a little bit about that now in hindsight?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think from, you know, speaking from my perspective as a psychologist, what we know is that there is uh, a strong component to, a strong, you know, genetic component to autism. And we know that it's also something that, you um, you know, is neurological, so it's it's not like a condition that you, you know, you play a, a few too many video games or you know you get a vaccine or something and then suddenly you get it. It's, it's something that's present, you know, from birth. Um, but I, I do it's think that, squashing
0: like, this in uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah, let's let's
1: get that out of the way right away. You know, take take your, you know, I, I I actually think it's kind of like well, it's a terrible conspiracy theory. It's caused a lot of harm in the world. But I I I kind of like to have fun with it sometimes, like when I. You know when i got my uh my COVID vaccine i texted my best friend that i'm like i'm even more autistic now i'm coming for you but i think it's fun <laughs> as a joke i think it's not a thing that anybody ought to take seriously but yeah anyway.
0: and you're allowed to make fun of yourself in any way shape or form that you want to <laughs> exactly it yes. sounds right. like you really it's it's the only way to be able to poke fun at yourself in such a advanced and mature way is when you've accepted yourself, I think when, when you know who you are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, sounds like you, you've done a lot of work on that.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, or really I've had a lot of work done with me. Like I, I wouldn't say that it's a, like I just went off to a mountaintop and meditated for a while. And so, and then I came back with the capacity to to self love, but really it it kind of took the form of a lot of people in my life offering me love and then me learning to kind of accept that and feel worthy of that. Um, and so I think to, to the extent that I was really involved in the process, it was really just like my choice to show up in those relationships and let myself be known uh, and and be loved. And then, and then over time, I start to digest the like, Oh yeah. Okay. I guess, I guess I really am okay as I am.
0: Yeah. So before I took you on that short tangent, you were, you were sort of building up the case of your understanding at a young age about your experience mm-hmm. and your condition.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think, I think what I would say is like, you know, for myself, like as an adult, as a professional, you know, obviously like I, I, you know, I understand more of the complexity of it. Like I understand, you know, how, it how it's, it's, you know, genetic, it's a way that your brain is wired at first. And then, and then also kind of like through your, your life and through the experiences that you have. Um, I think that you will either maybe learn ways to like, uh, you know, cope with it and manage it or, or you won't have that. And then we also have, um, th- th- there's this idea called sort of like the environmental model of disability. And it's basically the idea that like, if I if I use a wheelchair and I live in a town where everything is is on stairs, then my wheelchair really affects me quite a lot. But if I live in a town where they've taken the time to put in ramps and elevators, then my, my, you know, my wheelchair really doesn't hold me back from living uh, the life that I want to live. And in the same way with autism, um, I think that that uh, the way that that's going to play out in your life, partially it depends on your own work of, you know, developing your skills and whatever, but it also depends on on the environment. It depends on like, you know, can I go to a social group? And even if I don't make eye contact, people will still accept me and hang out with me um, or is it a group where if I'm a little bit quirky or different, people are going to say, Ew, you, you got to get out of here. Like that stuff matters quite a bit. And so I think honestly, in some ways, even more so than the autistic person themselves learning the skills, I think it's the rest of society or the community around them that makes a big difference in, uh, those people being able you, you know, those people being able to flourish. And so
0: you talked the word about masking in particular. Mm-hmm. So Let's say you have a natural disposition. Um, We've talked about the complexity, genetics, and environment that have led you to have deficiencies in social social emotional communication, perhaps reading Mm -hmm. messages, both from people's body language and their words and their tone. There was that struggle growing up. When you say masking, let's say you start working on those skills Mm -hmm. and you get better at it. It didn't come naturally to you. I get confused sometimes because is that masking? Or is mm-hmm. that just trying to adapt and grow and mm-hmm. and improve yourself? Yeah, so I, I think
1: it's a it's a tricky thing. And isn't I, there I a, sorry,
0: there, one last thing about it: isn't there a little bit of a pushback in the community of trying to be quote unquote normal, like mm-hmm. having to do to pass as non on the spectrum? Is that a thing? I I just want to understand the 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 controversy mm-hmm. or the conflict.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so there is within what's called like the neurodiversity movement um it's it's sort of this idea that like autism is just another way of being and it has uh just like being you know neurotypical has maybe pros and cons or strengths and weaknesses um you know being autistic has strengths and weaknesses you know like like an autistic person um you know not always but a lot of times autistic people are maybe going to be more honest than the standard you know population or they're they're going to be able to communicate more explicitly um or you know things of that nature and like those are good things or you know maybe maybe somebody has uh, a really you know like they have a special interest in something that brings them a lot of joy like i mean that's that's good i think i think the world would be a better place if everybody could have as much joy from something in their life as an autistic person gets from their special interest and so instead of saying these things are like bad or lesser or we should try to shut them down they sort of say let's let's celebrate the differences of autism um, and then again, try to set up society in such a way that uh, you know people with those differences can be accommodated and can fully participate and live a flourishing life. And and I think that there's there's some ways in which some of the like pressure to be normal, um, it like is is just is just harmful. Like I I think that about um, you know when when I uh, went through my process of, of kind of learning my social skills. Like I, I taught myself to not, uh, stem in front of, of other people. Um, and you know, I think other autistic people have had really traumatic experiences where they've worked with a therapist who has like used really aversive, uh, methods to kind of stop them from stemming. I never had that happen to me. I just sort of taught myself and, and yet, um, like I, I taught it so deeply that it's now, very difficult for me to express this part of myself around even my most trusted loved ones um like there's this like sort of ingrained shame response that i have around stimming like this is not okay that you know rationally i know is not true and i've had people tell me like you know like can you tell us what
0: stimming is so that everybody can know
1: for for sure yeah Um, so stimming is, is something that, um, autistic people do, honestly, even non-autistic people can sometimes do it or something similar to it, but it's, it's basically like a, a repetitive rhythmic kind of, um, body movement. And so, uh, for some people, it might take the form of like rocking back and forth, might take the form of like shaking a can or feeling some kind of sensation, uh, might take the form of like moving your hands in a particular way, uh for me it takes the form of of kind of like uh flapping my arms like i'll sort of just like move my arms out and bring them back in and um sometimes like make a noise to go along with it and it it feels um sort of pleasant to do it uh it it, it brings sort of a sense of like calm and enjoyment and at least for myself it can help me kind of focus on what i'm wanting to focus on um but but yeah like i i you know like I would, I would sooner get naked in front of somebody than I would, I would stem in front of that person, and uh, you know, and, and that I think is a form of very harmful masking that I, I took something that's just a just a natural part of of who I am, existing in my natural state, and kind of taught myself that that was, you know, shameful or or bad. And I think that that's you know things like that or things like oh, you gotta yeah. Well, let let's pause at, on that for at, a second. Right? That, sure, sure, sure.
0: Yeah, that's very important for so. First of all, do you still have the desire to do it sometimes?
1: Yeah, or is it... and I do it. I do it uh, frequently when I'm alone. Like okay, so most, so it's still a part of your life. Of exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And it sounds like the key inter- interaction here is there's a flexibility that needs to take place between the individual person with autism and the community and the society. So sometimes they're gonna we're gonna want to move towards complete full self expression, a hundred percent authenticity not mm-hmm. a lot of regulation, being more more and more yourself, who you are, the way you want to live. Mm-hmm. Other times it's a personal decision that someone can make. They can say, I'm not ashamed. I'm not bad because I have these behaviors, but I'd like to learn to be more flexible and to be able to adapt, to fit into certain environments better. Mm-hmm. Can those two things be true together at the same time? Yeah.
1: I mean, like, absolutely. And I and I think that for a lot of things, it's it's about the balance between those things where there might be certain things where, you know, like I I would, you know, if I was going to go on a job interview, I probably would, you know, wouldn't necessarily want to stim at that job interview because um I, you know, I understand that I'm I'm making a first impression and you know, people might need a little bit more time to to understand uh different things about me before they're necessarily gonna, you know, take that that within context. Um, so it's it's you know, it's nice to have some degree of conscious control over it, but it's also like you know, with, when I'm with my friends, um, I, I, you know, or if I'm with my family or something like that, um, or even if I'm just out in society, like I, I, it used to be that I would go to the mall as a kid and I would see some Star Wars thing and I would start stimming. And that was like so fun for me. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't hurting anybody. I, I think that uh, I, I should be able to do that if I want to. Um, but I think that, again, for myself, I kind of overcorrected, And now it's sort of a thing that I've, I've put behind shame. Um, And so I I think, yeah, I think, I think with something like stimming, I think being able to say like, this is just a a form of diversity and it should be something that is, is generally, you should just, you know, express it, accept it, whatever. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I I think there's, you know, other components of social interaction where it's like, well, you know, I might in my most natural state, I might interrupt somebody a lot. Um, And, you know, even though that's me kind of being natural, it it does cause harm to somebody else because, you know, they're being interrupted. That's not pleasant. Or maybe in my most natural state, I don't like to wear deodorant or something like that. But those are things where it's like, well, part of being, uh, you know, in a society, in relationships, being considerate of the needs of other people, you know, it, it does mean that sometimes, you know, you have to do something that you don't necessarily want to make somebody else more comfortable. And that's true for autistic people and neurotypical people. And so I think that there's there's a balance between, you know, am I wanting to moderate this behavior a little bit just because, it, like, it's a reasonable way to be considerate to somebody else, or am I moderating this behavior because, you know, it's not it's not harming this other person in any way, um, but it's just different, and I'm 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 hiding a part of myself that's different, and in that case, I think that very clearly fits as masking, and that would be the the thing that I would say is is going to be harmful in most cases.
0: Wow. So it's it's really learning about behaviors in context, the function that they play, the relationships that you have. There's so many considerations that we all have to be 100% authentic. Mm-hmm. And just because somebody decides not to 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 do stimming behaviors doesn't mean that they're not being authentic. It means that they're regulating in that context. But maybe there's other places like for yourself, you've talked about there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to do that with my family or my mm-hmm. friends or when I'm in certain situations. And that's something that you overcompensated for, and now you're going to, maybe, I don't know, we, we we didn't decide that, you didn't decide anything, but you might be working on reducing that shame by taking those risks, knowing that people will just accept you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah that, that sounds, it sounds like it's a really delicate balance. You, you've mentioned your your pathway, you described it very much not individualistic, and the way your TED talk is framed is a be- some beautiful stories about friendship, Please please talk to me about the role of friendship, support, loved ones, care, and how they helped you get to where you are today.
1: Yeah. So I think that there's kind of um there's sort of three components to that. And I I, I know that I tend to be a little worried, so I'm gonna to try to do the, the cliffs notes of each component and then we can we can unpack whichever one is, is No, no, you share it as you want to. Okay. All right. Well, that's a dangerous thing to say to me. Um, we might uh, I can. I while, can. But... I can. I
0: can. I can speak back if I think it's too much. Okay.
1: Cool. Sounds good. So, so there's there's one component where where it was just sort of in the in the purely practical skills based way. Um, other people really benefited me. Um, like just as one example, when I was in high school, I would often watch movies with my parents, and I would have the remote control. And when there would be something happening uh, that I wouldn't understand, I would pause it. And I would be like, wait, like they, they were fighting and now they're kissing. Like what, what happened? Like, or, you know, like th- this person said something and it sounded like a compliment, but now they're, they're angry. What's, what's going on? And then my parents would be like, oh, well, no, like that, that wasn't fighting. That was flirting or, oh, like, well, that, that person said this thing, but it was actually sarcastic. And that's, and then I'd be like, oh, and then I could like watch the scene again and I could be like, oh, like I, I get it. I get the, the thing that I was missing. And that was a big part of my skill development or just other kinds of practical. You know, like there was one time that I like wore my shirt inside out to some class presentation. I had the teacher pull me aside and be like, dude, like if your shirt's inside out, nobody's going to take you seriously. And I was like, oh, like I didn't know that. Um, it, it feels fine to me, but I, I'll change my shirt. And so I think just having that practical feedback, just like learning any other kind of skill was necessary for me. Um, I think there was another component, which is sort of what we talked about before, which was sort of like the the ability to like self love and and accept that I I belong somewhere. Um, I I think a really notable example of this was there was this one time when I was uh, going to uh, like a social event with my church youth group, and everybody else was like doing activities, they were having fun, and I was just sort of like sitting by the snacks and just sort of doing nothing, my youth pastor came up to me and he's like, Daniel, this is your youth group. Like you, you have just as much of right as anybody else to go join a game or whatever. And I was like, like, I, like, I never thought of that. I'd always felt like there was me and there was everybody else rather than me being able to belong and be valid. And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to go play some volleyball. Um, and so that was a part of it. And then I think that the, the other part that was important was, was just kind of, like the joy of friendship or the joy of connection. Um, Like I I remember at one point talking to this autistic person who was like, like other people are weird. Like, why would I want to talk to other people? Like I have video games. What's the point of that? But then like, they had never really had a friend. They had never really had a positive social experience. And it's kind of like, you know, like I love ice cream, but if I'd never eaten ice cream in my life, I might be like, why would I want that? That's kind of weird. You know, came out of a cow gross. Um, but, but because I had had those experiences, that was part of where the motivation came from to be like, even though I might have some social anxiety here, I'm going to push through that. Or even though I might've had a bad experience where this person did reject me or, or I offended somebody or whatever, I'm, I'm going to try again with somebody else because I, I know that this can be good. And that motivates me to keep going. So
0: there are some, the person that you meant that other autistic person he didn't have a positive social interactive experience, so for him, he just told a story that, "Oh, I don't, I don't need that, or I don't mm-hmm. need those kind of connections." But it sounds like for you, you knew that you needed that, and you had that, and so you, you, you basically. And did this person ever
1: get through that and start to become social? <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. It, it was somebody that I I came across online, and we had like one conversation, and that was it. Um, so I don't, I didn't. Follow but that's up really with
0: hard. Them that mm-hmm. there are some individuals that they've told themselves and, and I get everybody's different. Some people might only need like a very small amount of social interaction, but they just told themselves, I don't need that. But you're the way you describe things are so interpersonally.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's hard to imagine your life without that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I do like, I mean, I think it's like, you know, maybe there's some, you know, biologist that's listening to this, that's going to tell me that I'm wrong. But my understanding is like, you know, every living being on earth needs water. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're like, you know, a camel and you don't, you know, need it that often, or maybe you're like a, you know, a fish and you've got to have around you all the time, but like everybody needs it to some extent, you know, there's, there's, you can't just be like, I'm never going to have water at all. And I think that social relationships are the same way. Like, I think it's totally valid if you're the sort of person that's like, man, I I just want to have one or two close friends, or I just want to, you know, hang out with people, you know, a couple times a month or whatever. Like that's, that's what works for me. You know, or if you're like, I want to, I want to be at a party every night. All of those things are okay. But the place where I would call the yes is if you're like, yeah, I don't need anybody. Um, Like my, my, that autistic person that I talked to, he was like, I have three monitors, <laughs> like three monitors, a top of line gaming computer. Why would I need other people? And I'm sort of like, it doesn't matter how many monitors you have. doesn't matter what kind of graphics card you have. Um, you need at least some amount of of real relationship in your life. I I would say that that's just an essential human need, like food or water. Can you
0: tell us one of the stories, uh, in particular, in your college career, I believe, mm-hmm. um, where people really stepped up and brought you in and 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 helped you. You you told basically you told your story up until university. Um, mm-hmm. so tell us, continue your story a little bit.
1: Yeah so i think i think if i'm gonna talk about college i i think what was um really notable to me i, I think in high school that was sort of a time period where i kind of learned that i could be social by like really working out my social skills really um you know like like really putting in this effort to understand other people and provide value to other people like in high school I ended up being the guy that would give dating advice to everybody else, which was ironic because I, I didn't date in high school. Um, but like everybody else would like come to me with their girl drama and I would be like, okay, I I'll, I'll, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll do my best. So like I I found this role in the group where I could like provide a lot of value and that allowed, you know, and, and I, I sort of was like, okay, that allows me to be accepted. Um, you know, looking back, I don't think that that was actually the case. I think people just liked me for me, but like the story that I was telling myself was, I figured out how to be useful, therefore they keep me around. But then in college, um, like I wasn't useful. I mean, like I'm sure that I, I did some things that were that were contributing, but I I found this group where I didn't really have to be the one to, you know, organize the social gathering. I didn't have to be the one that was the go-to guy. I, I could just sort of be with the group and they would be happy to see me, happy to include me, happy to invite me, happy to, you know, share their lives with me. And so that was, I think, some of how I started to recognize this, this value of like, um, yeah, like again, social skills are valuable, and there's sometimes where you want to be, you know, they help you connect with people, they help you be considerate, they help you whatever. But that, but, but the core person that I was was still a good and lovable person, even on the days that I was awkward, even on the days where I didn't mask, et cetera. And that was that was a lot of the value I got from college.
0: And how did you? given that you've been working on you've been basically working on this your whole life almost or for mm-hmm. most of your adult life how did that impact your decision to want to go into to become a psychologist
1: yeah so psychology really took me by surprise um because i i took one psychology class in college and i hated it it was it was about like you know studying rats in a maze i'm like that sucks it was about like how many candles you have to light before the human eye can perceive the difference. I'm like, who cares? Uh, it just seemed very, you know, like psychology as a field seemed kind of pointless to me. And then like being a psychologist or being a therapist seemed sort of like stuffy. I was like, I'm going to be in a little small office and wear uncomfortable pants and like, you know, like it just, it just seemed limiting to me. But then what I, what I found, um, So I was actually a business major um, and and a Spanish major, not a, not a psychology major. But then what I found like a couple years out of uh, college is I started my website, improveyoursocialskills.com, where I was just sort of trying to share what I had learned about social skills and connection with other people. And it like really took off. And I had a lot of people send me emails that were like, this is really helpful for me. I did some one-on-one social skills coaching with people and I could sort of see the difference that like working with them, giving them advice could do. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of at a crossroads because I could either just let this be this website that I made. And then I just sort of let it go and I keep pursuing this life of business or uh, I, I could actually like really double down on this. I could really, you know, I could be, instead of just some guy on the internet, I could have some real credentials, some real experience. Um, I could, I could speak from a place of authority and, And then I'm like, okay, if I want to do that, I got to be a psychologist. And I'm like, shoot, I got to be a psychologist. And so I, I find, I, you know, I kind of, you know, did the process of discernment, realized that that was the path for me, um, and ended up, uh, you know, pursuing that. And then once I actually got into grad school, like, you know, once I started to see clients, I was like, oh, like therapy is actually this really beautiful, incredible thing. And I was misunderstanding it, um, and, and, and I think I, I made a lot of peace with that pathway. And now that I've switched to just doing online therapy, I can wear whatever pants I want. And so I don't have to wear the uncomfortable, you know, pants anymore. So bonus.
0: It's great. So now you are practicing, you still are very involved in social skills, but improving social skills, but you're, you're, you're as well in a, in a professional role as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the social skills. Tell us, you know, how, how they've impacted, you know, how, how, everybody both people on the spectrum not on the spectrum um how you you know how you teach those how it works what some of them that we can learn uh mm-hmm. today anything like that
1: mm-hmm. yeah so I'll I'll say two things about teaching social skills I think one thing is that w- what I try to do is I I try to kind of create um like a mental model rather than a, a tip because a, a lot of times um when people try to teach social skills, they, they teach it as sort of like just these arbitrary rules to follow. It's like, okay, if, if you, um you know, if you meet somebody, you got to give them a good firm handshake. It's like, well, okay, well, why? Did you have to give them a firm? Like, what's the point of that? And and like, if you meet somebody and they're on, like, they're on Zoom and you can't give them a handshake, how are you supposed to apply, you know, this this tip? What's, what's going on with that? And so that, like, I don't think that that's really helpful, especially for somebody on the spectrum that is like, Uh, you know, doesn't necessarily know how to take a tip and modify it to a different situation. And so what I try to do instead is I try to teach sort of like underlying principles that let somebody build a mental model that help it like that, 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 that help that person sort of uh, make decisions in a moment. And so for instance, the idea of like making a firm handshake when you greet somebody, it's not about the firm handshake. It's like, when you greet somebody, uh, what you want to do is you want to communicate that you are um you know like excited to see them um and you want to you want to communicate that you are um like interested in the interaction and that you are a like relatively stable okay kind of person because they're making an initial impression of you and if and if you are like really off base off the bat they might be a little bit concerned or something like that and so uh like shaking hands with somebody you know, it's not about shaking hands. It's about like, I give you a good firm handshake that lets me show like, I'm interested in this, in this interaction with you. And that is, you know, that's going to make you feel good. That's going to make you want to interact with me. And so if I meet you on zoom or something, I can't shake your hand, but I can try to find some other way to make that initial connection, show that enthusiasm, etc. um And so it's, it's that kind of uh model that, that I try to use to sort of teach social skills. Um, but there's one other component that I would add, which is that what I found as I as I did this work, and especially as I did my psychology training, is that a lot of times people think that social skills are the problem when, when really it's it's not about your interactions with the other person, it's about your interactions with yourself. And so a lot of times somebody might have a, a strong self-critical voice that is like, I have to be perfect in this interaction, I have to be super charming, I've got to bring the Leonardo DiCaprio level of charisma. And, uh, you know, and and then you put all that pressure on yourself, then of course, you're going to you're not going to live up to that standard because, you know, I'm sure even Leonardo DiCaprio has his bad days. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that part of what I do when I work on social skills with somebody is to try to determine, do you actually need to build your social skills or is the work a little bit more accepting yourself as you are and being willing to just show up fully just as you are? um, Because oftentimes that's actually all you need to be able to connect with people.
0: I would say then it's almost, to me, they all fall under under the category of social skills in some way, but it sounds like one is perhaps dealing with social anxiety, self-judgment, judgment judgment of others. Uh, We talk about it as like the pre-anticipation of social situations, the social event itself, regulating yourself in the social event, and then the post-event processing. Those categories that a lot of people are, they're social, it's not that they're lacking skills per se. There can be a deficit because of social anxiety. For example, somebody might know very well that eye contact is important and Mm -hmm. to look at people and to balance looking at them and looking around them, et cetera. But they're so anxious that when someone's looking at them, they're judging them in a negative way that they almost don't want to look. They develop a social deficit, but it's because of a social anxiety. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's, what's really cool is that maybe with, from a, being a psychologist, you can work through all of it from very practical social skills to the underlying difficulties that people have socializing. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's been one of like, that's been one of the reasons why I've been really happy about the, the direction that I took with my career, that it really did. Like, it wasn't just that I could say the same kind of things, but I could put a doctor in front of my name, but actually there's a lot of benefit in learning from the field of psychology and all of the insight that. You know, psychologists have developed you know over the years, and and yeah, being able to go beyond the surface of just oh yeah, you need to look at somebody's eyes or whatever, and being able to know like well what what are you feeling, what's going on inside you, what are the obstacles to applying the skill, all of that comes together um, to to be useful. I I think I do want to say in case somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, well then I guess I'll just give up because that sounds way too complex or whatever. Um, is that it, it's actually I like to use the metaphor sort of like of Jenga, where like, you know, if you've got this tower of Jenga blocks, there's some blocks that you can push on that really won't, they're stuck. Like the whole tower will fall down if you push. And then there's others that are easy to move. And sometimes as you keep playing the game, a block that was stuck before suddenly frees up and then you can move it. And so what I like to think about is that it's not that you've got to do all of these things perfectly in order to be successful. It's that you've got this huge menu of options. And so if you want to be better at relationships, you know, maybe, maybe the Jenga block that you can move is to learn some social skills. Maybe the Jenga block that you can move is by working on a little bit more self-love, reducing that, you know, anxiety or that self-critical voice. Maybe the block you can move is to just put yourself in, in uh, environments where the other people are a little bit more accepting and they help you a little bit more. So, you know, all of those things are going to be beneficial. It's just about finding what's the next step that's right for you
0: and how do you help people practice is it something that you do in a relational sense in a session as well how, do do we do we have exposures or practices where people go into the new into their world and try things on are there opportunities for sort of training in in the moment
1: mm-hmm. yeah so so typically what I what I'll do is i will uh, i'll try to yeah in a session itself i'll try to do you know like role plays and chances to kind of try the skills try the behaviors I'll, I'll use sort of what's, what's called like an interpersonal approach where if they are engaging in some kind of interpersonal pattern or uh, having some, like, like I, I will uh, help them sort of see what are the things that are coming up in terms of how they feel about like my relationship with them. Uh, because a lot of times I might have a client who, you know, like they're very sensitive to criticism. Mm-hmm. And so they might think that I'm really mad at them when they show up two minutes late to session. Mm-hmm. And then I'm able to like, let them know like actually I'm not mad at you at all. Like I'm, you know, like I got to use two minutes to play Candy Crush or whatever. It's okay. Like let's do our session. And and letting them get that like, you know, it's not, it's not a role play. It's actually how I feel. That can be useful. Um, But of course, with any kind of therapy, my job is to work myself out of a job. And so I'm also going to be encouraging them to, you know, find opportunities to go out in the world, whether it's with new friends or with people that they already know, to try these skills and sort of, you know, put them into practice.
0: So just so many operas, it, it's, it's, you know, there's an array of men of a menu of different mm-hmm. things to work on. And there's a improve social There's also a book that you wrote. And as far as I understand, Two is books. it called
1: improve your, so it's, Oh, it's called improve your social skills. That's yeah. very uh, clear. Uh, it, it, that, that, I mean, it's autism, right? It's just like, this is, this is what it is. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, here you go. Like I'm going to be very clear with you. So um, yeah, I've got got the Improve Your Social Skills book. That's more of like a a general guide. And then I have a book called uh, Level Up Your Social Life, which sort of uses video games as a metaphor uh, to kind of explain social uh, skills. And so if you're you're into video games, uh, that one's another good read to kind of, again, try to move beyond like, these are just some tips that are isolated into like, oh, I understand how this technique works in a video game. I can use that as a metaphor to understand what I'm supposed to do here in real life
0: wow and and it always ties in cuz i see there's another book on or written by a friend of yours but the, the friendship formula this, mm-hmm. it's all about ultimately this is not just about you know become a better business person by speaking better with people or like get what you want i mean sure the more social skills you have the more social capital you can build the more people are connected to you the more you're connected to people but mm-hmm. on a deep level it reduces loneliness
1: mm-hmm.
0: right i think that that's one of your your major more underlying core goals and values throughout all of this is to help reduce loneliness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think it's, it's, it's reduce loneliness, create connection, create like, um, you know, like, like when I think about like, what are the moments in my life that I'm the most grateful for? Where I, I, you know, I was the most fulfilled. They were the, like all of them have other people in them. Um, and I think that that's true for a lot of folks um, and, and yeah, I mean like this stuff does have other benefits, right? Like I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you learn these things, you're going to be able to do a better presentation at work. Maybe you get promoted, who knows, but you know, when people are on their deathbed, they're not like, man, I really wish that I did better presentations at work. They're like, I really want to, you know, I really like, am either glad or regretful about the relationships that I had and the times that I spent with people. And so that's the, that's the end goal of all this stuff.
0: Wow. Wow so so many different ways to learn can you maybe just share with us one interesting i know you don't like to do it in this way because you have a whole system and there's i, I think you talk <laughs> about more meta skills but is there something that you think you know people coming back normal life much more social opportunities some people have been really shut away from social events is there just anything that you want to tell students about getting back to socializing uh, dealing mm-hmm. with their anxiety is there like one thing that stands out for you that you
1: really want people to hear at this moment mm-hmm. yeah so i think the, be- the best thing that i would say is like if you pick the right environment to go out and and be social in that's 80 percent of the battle right there and i think sometimes what i find people do is they're like oh like i you know i went to the gym and nobody there wants to talk with me and it's like well duh because like they're not going to the gym to talk to you they're going to the gym to like Get their workout in, um, or maybe it's like, well, I went to a bar and people are there, but like, <clears throat> you know, they're all drunk and angry all the time. It's like, well, you know, sometimes people go to the jar they they get drunk. <laughs> like that's that's what happens. And so I think if you are like, I think if you can find a social environment to go to that attracts people who want to be social and people who maybe share your kinds of values, you are going to have so much of an easier time versus trying to make friends. In, in the wrong kind of environment. So if, if you're like, I really care about this particular issue, if you find a group that volunteers to help with that particular issue, get, like, I mean, those are probably kind accepting people because they're giving up their Saturday to volunteer. They care about the same issues you do. You're gonna like, you're already like 80% of the way to making friends with them or you have a particular hobby. You really love that hobby. Go find a thing that, that does that hobby rather than just say, oh, I went out to some, random place with people that I don't have anything necessarily in common with and those people didn't like me it's like well you're you're playing on hard mode there's no reason to play on hard mode like play on easy mode and um that's going to make every that's going to be a multiplier effect on anything else that you want to try to apply it, it <laughs> makes so much sense there are
0: game there are easier environments that are more open more receptive more aligned with your values and why why do that to yourself why mm-hmm. why put yourself into these situations i mean there's high, i agree high percentage social situations where yeah you can't guarantee that, that it's going to work out but at least then you can take the skills you've learned from you know dr daniel's website and book and everything mm-hmm. and use it um, in the most maximally effective way and that sounds like a really good starting point is to choose your 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 risks choose your environments wisely um, in getting started i think that's that's something great for for us to learn Lastly, you also, um, do marketing for therapists. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of other things. So just tell us a little bit about how, how that works
1: for anybody that might be listening. That's a therapist. For sure. So, uh, my, as I mentioned, like I was a business major, um, in college. And so then when I got out of college, uh, I started working in online marketing, um, you know, did that for a number of years. Um, and then when I started grad school, I would, I would talk to, Uh, like other, you know, students. And I would talk to therapists that had graduated and started their career. And all of them were just like terrified about the whole idea of online marketing. They're like, well, I, you know, I'm, I I, like, I know how to do therapy, but like, how am I going to get people to find me? I got like, like, how do I do a Google? What's it? Should I be on MySpace? I don't know. And, and so, or, you know, and so I'm like, I I know these things. And so I decided to start a website, marketingfortherapist.org, where initially it was just supposed to be some free advice. I was like, here's some tips, like, you know, go do it yourself. And then what I found is that people would reach out to me and be like, can you help me? Can you do this for me? I'm like, okay. And then over time, a lot of demand built up. Uh, I brought on some really expert members of a team to be able to offer like more comprehensive services. And so for therapists that want to uh, reach clients with online marketing, with somebody who understands therapy, with somebody who's going to do it in an ethical way uh, that's clinically sound, that's sort of what I offer. And, uh, you know I, I split my time between that and everything else but uh that's definitely a fun way to continue to use my my business skills and kind of serve my my colleagues in my profession.
0: And I think it's really an extension you're trying to help people get their message out there communicate mm-hmm. better. Um yeah. I think it's all I think your work is all interconnected in some <laughs> in in some way but that that's amazing. So any any words of hope that you want to share for the students listening who are you know you mentioned a great tip any any last things that you want to share to the students?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that the major like the major thing that I would say is that I've I've had multiple times in my life where I uh really wondered if there would be like a place for me where I could I could be accepted where I could connect, um, and sometimes even like if I had had previous times in my life where I had had good success, but then I I move or that friend group drifts apart or whatever like there would be this old fear of like, what if that was the last time that'll ever happen and nobody will ever like you again. And it, it, it creates this, this desire to like avoid and withdraw and give up. And I think that the biggest message of hope that I would, that I would give is that like, you know, regardless of who you are or um, what your experiences have been, like there is a, a place where you're um, like, you will be accepted and not just accepted, but like but but valued and like a a deep contributor to the experience and the life of other people like you you will find people who are not just tolerant of you being around but people who are grateful to have you be around and like you will be in some of the happiest memories that somebody else has in their life Um, but the only way that that'll happen is if you don't give up and you keep um, you know putting one foot in front of another to try to find those spaces
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it just brings me up to one last thing that I wanted to make sure to get to, which is going back all the way to the beginning for you Mm -hmm. at a younger age. And maybe this is another business that you'll eventually do helping people, the generals, either schools or other kids learn about autism spectrum disorders so that Mm -hmm. they understand these people a lot better. I, I, I bet with very simple psychoeducation, I know that doesn't solve bullying. There's huge issues. I'm not you know, trying to say that just a a seminar or something would help. But I just wonder if people, you know, they sat down 10 year olds and talked to them and say, you know, not everybody's the same in these situations. Here's, here are some patterns you might see in some of your friends and that's okay. Like, I I just wonder if starting, instead of it having to be so lonely for so long, you, thankfully you figured it out and you had such a great supporting cast, but I don't know that everybody will have that same experience. Hopefully they do, Mm -hmm. but maybe there's a few, tips and ideas that that can easily be put into educational systems that could, could help, could help.
1: Yeah. I don't know. No, absolutely. Like, I, I think that it's, I mean, I do, I do think that I, I have some hope for the next generation. I, I think that that is a value that is uh, being spread more widely. And I, I remember being at a social thing where there was a lot of folks in their twenties and this one girl like pulled out like a fidget toy, um, and was just sort of like using it. And then like everybody else was like, oh, what a great fidget toy. And like half a dozen people pulled out their fidget toys and they were like talking about how it helped them with their anxiety or their ADHD or whatever. And like, this is so cool. Like this is, this is everybody just bringing their real self to this, this social setting and like not being ashamed of it. And so I, I do think that that like you know the young folks are kind of getting there uh, regardless. But I, I do think that people that are that are you know older or or in positions of authority have a big role to play too. And honestly, I don't know that there's a better idea than the one that you mentioned of like being able to have those conversations with your kids. Whether it's like you know kids that you're a parent of, whether it's if you're a teacher, you're an administrator, or whatever, being able to just sort of say, "Hey, this is a thing that like can happen. That that th- these differences exist." and and then also like modeling values, right? Like how do we how do we feel about these differences? Are are they they something that we celebrate? Are they something that we accept? are they something that we are like mm, maybe we'll tolerate that? I think that you know kids will look at how you behave, and the more that you model compassion and acceptance, and you know uh, befriending somebody who might be a little bit different than you, the more that your kids are going to take that in and adopt that as their own values.
0: Well, yeah, so there's a lot of work to be done, but you're optimistic and there's much more societal understanding and awareness, perhaps more flexible approaches to supporting those on the spectrums from very rigid, changing their behaviors entirely, masking entirely to, you know, a flexible approach, self-acceptance within that while also striving for improvement. Um, it's a big topic and thank you so much for sharing both about your experiences with autism, uh, with the formerly diagnosed Asperger's. That's a whole other question about mm-hmm. how people relate to that today. I won't I don't, I won't get into that. Um, mm-hmm. And as well as social skills, we're gonna link everything and people can really learn whether they're on the spectrum or not on the spectrum, learning social skills, improving, and uh, becoming closer to people in whatever way, shape or form are, are incredible things that all students can learn. So thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: It was, It was a pleasure and an honor to be here.
0: And of course, a disclaimer, this podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to with 2 vsca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two V's.ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till Til next, next time, time take, take care. care. The theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street.